This morning, we're going to take a, a, a one Sunday break from our series of looking at the parables of Jesus. And this morning, I invite you to turn in God's holy word to Psalm chapter 6. Psalm chapter 6. This morning, we will be looking at the entirety of this particular psalm. God's word says to you and to me this morning, to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is, is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes and give us understanding that by your Spirit, working through your word, Lord, you would encourage us today. You would lift us up. Despite the things that seek to pull us down, Lord, you are stronger than all of them. And so we ask that you would pull us up out of the pit, bring us into your heavenly realm, that we may gaze upon the beauty of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. If you've been with us during the Sunday school hour recently, we've made reference to the whiteboard where we list out our prayer requests for those who are dealing with physical infirmities, those who are dealing with spiritual matters, those who are traveling, and so forth and so on. Every, every need uh, that we are experiencing, that, that those we know and love are experiencing, we, we write it on the board so that we can be praying for them, and all you have to do is go walk into that Sunday school and look at that board and see that there's a lot of prayer requests written on that whiteboard. Whether a small church or a large church, we are all dealing with adversities of various kinds. Scripture talks about adversity and all of the different causes of adversity. 
Adversity can take the form of oppression from the wicked because we are Christians, which seems to be what is going on in this particular psalm with David. Adversity can also take the form of sickness as the effects of sin and death wage war on our bodies, and as they wage war on our bodies, that also affects our soul. God made us both soul and body, and there is a connection between the two. So that as the body goes, so does the soul, and as the soul goes, so does the body. They affect one another. And so sickness, which affects our outward selves, also takes its toll on our inward selves. Adversity can take the form of spiritual oppression from the evil one as we deal with besetting sins, a thorn in the flesh, or, or an intense time of temptation. Maybe it's an intense period of doubt. Am I really saved? Am I really a child of God? As believers living in a fallen world, we encounter and have to deal with temptation and sin and death and oppression from Satan, from the world, and from our own sinful flesh that remains. And all of these things fall under this umbrella category of adversity. And it is my prayer this morning that we will find encouragement and hope as we look at what believers should do in times of adversity. The title of our sermon this morning is Prayers, Tears, and Assurance. Prayers, Tears, and Assurance. And from verses 1 through 5, we see that in times of adversity, believers should pray to God for deliverance. Believers should pray to God for deliverance. David, in this specific psalm, is under God's hand of discipline. Based on verse 8, depart from me, all you workers of evil. In verse 7, my eye grows weak because of all my foes. It seems that God is using the wicked, either unbelieving Israelites or unbelievers and from pagan nations, to carry out God's purpose of chastising David. And so in his lament, David cries out to the Lord that he would be relieved from God's hand of discipline. The Lord God, as a holy God, the Holy One of Israel, he is angry at sin, even in the lives of his children, you and me. And his purpose in his fatherly discipline and displeasure is to drive sin out of us through his divine providence and the working of his Holy Spirit so that we are more and more conformed unto the image of Jesus Christ. Until Christ is formed within us, God will continue to use all sorts of good and hardship to mold us as the potter molds a lump of clay. To summarize the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, God in his wisdom, grace, and righteousness at times leaves his children over for a while to their temptations and sin. Why? In order to chastise them, to reveal their own sinfulness and just how strong sin is within us, all of which is to humble us. 
to draw us closer to God and dependence upon Him, and to make us more watchful against sin. To make us more watchful against sin. We're, we're familiar with Paul's reference to this thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. But if you look at the context, why does Paul say God gave him this thorn in his flesh? He says that God gave him this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, in order to keep Paul humble because of the seeding greatness of the revelations that Paul had received. Paul was exposed to the temptation of pride because he had received many great revelations. I mean, he saw the risen and ascended Savior on the road to Damascus. And he was, he was an apostle writing down scripture under divine inspiration from the Holy Spirit himself. So Paul says, to keep me humble so that I did not become puffed up with pride, God gave me this messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh. Whom the Lord loves with an everlasting love, he disciplines for their good. So David has been under the discipline of God, but he asked for relief in verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Let, temper your hand of chastisement upon me. Let it not be as bad as it could be. Let, treat me not like an unbeliever, but temper it. Rebuke me, but don't rebuke me in your anger. Discipline me, but don't discipline me in wrath. Parents, we know the difference, do we not, between when we've disciplined our children in anger and when we've disciplined them not in anger but for the glory of God and for their good. And our children know that difference. And so David says, temper your discipline. Let mercy be mixed in with your discipline, with your chastisement. Treat me not as an enemy, but treat me as a child. So David's first request in his prayer to God is for God's discipline to be tempered so that it's the discipline of God as father rather than the discipline of God as judge. But David continues in his prayer, in verses 2 through 4. Oh Lord, go beyond that. Heal me. Be gracious to me. Relent of your discipline altogether. Be gracious to me. Heal me. My soul is greatly troubled. How long? Turn, O oh Lord. Deliver my life. Take your hand of discipline off of me. Heal these bones that you have troubled because of your hand of discipline. Deliver me because of your steadfast love, your covenantal faithfulness. How long will you continue to trouble my soul, O oh God? David is praying to God from a heart that is broken and contrite under divine affliction. That's exactly what, how God wants us to respond when he afflicts us. It's to humble us, to break us, to bring us to our knees in repentance of our sins, and to 
bring us to a position where we recognize I am completely dependent upon the Lord God for everything. Matthew Henry says that this is, quote, a heart truly humbled under humbling providences. And so David describes himself, I'm weak, I'm, I'm withering emotionally and physically and spiritually. My bones are troubled. I'm languishing. It's a, it's a reference to, uh, to emotional uh, struggles, emotional weakness. My, my spiritual self, my soul is greatly troubled. My inner man. And it's, it's, it's so bad that David reaches a point where, where he kind of chokes on his words in verse 3. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord... The ESV has a long dash there. David cuts off his words because in his weakness, he just can't finish his sentence. It seems like he was going to ask, how long, O Lord, will you allow me to continue in this condition? But he can't, and all that comes out is, how long? There's a sudden silence and abruptness here where where David's own words reflect his emotions and his state of being. Every fiber of David's being has been a affected by God's discipline and is being humbled under God's discipline. We don't know what David's particular sin was. We're not told the context. But under the loving rebuke of his heavenly father, David is confessing his sins and asking God to relent because the chastising hand of God has brought great adversity to David. And he's so overwhelmed that he feels like he's close to death. Deliver my life. I feel like I'm close to the grave. In death, verse 5, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, which in this sense seems to indicate the grave. In Sheol, in the grave, who will give you praise? Deliver my life because in death there is no remembrance of you. If... Your hand of chastisement brings me to the point where I die. I will no longer be able to go to your holy temple and cry out to you and sing your praises with my voice. I don't want to die from your discipline. I want to keep on worshiping you and praising you and living for your glory. Do not cut me off. Deliver my life. Do you hear and feel the the anguish of David's cry in this psalm? Perhaps you can identify with that anguish today. It may not be because of some specific sin committed, as in David's case, but nevertheless, sin or the effects and consequences of sin are, are affecting you all under the sovereign providence of God. And what are you doing about it? What do you do when God's, so to speak, frowning providence, when his face seems to be turned against you, his hand of discipline is upon you, and you don't feel the love and the smile of your heavenly Father? What do you do? Do you try to deal with it in your own strength? Do you say, I'm fine, as we love to do in the South? When people ask, how are you doing? But inside you know that you're not really fine at all. 
when you are driven to the end of yourself physically, emotionally, or spiritually, it's okay to take all of that to the Lord in prayer. In fact, that's what he wants you to do. That is one of his holy purposes in afflicting you, is to bring you to him in prayer. Perhaps in your time of comfort and ease, perhaps you've forgotten God. Perhaps you've left off praying to God, and so God afflicts you to bring you back to see the importance of prayer, to come and commune with him as your heavenly father. Stop ignoring me, my child. It's okay to bring all of this to the Lord and to pour out all of your anguish before him. It's also okay to tell others how you are doing. And you don't have to go into every single sort of detail, but it's also okay to tell others, you know what, I'm really struggling right now. I feel like the Lord has disciplined me for what I do not know, and I'm really just, I am really struggling. And I would appreciate your prayer. It's easy to pray for others' physical afflictions, but we even more so need to be praying for each other's spiritual afflictions. You know, I'm really struggling with pride. And the Lord seems to be humbling me right now, for which I'm grateful, but it's not easy, it's not fun, it's not pleasant, and I don't know how long it's going to last. Would you please pray for me? Or I'm struggling with this, or I'm struggling with this. Or the Lord just recently revealed that I have had this sin of my thoughts or in my heart. The sin of envy, the sin of jealousy, coveting, whatever it may be. All that we confess that goes against God's holy law and the first and second kind. It's okay to tell others, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, please pray for me. It's better to ask for prayers of believers than to lie and say that you're doing fine. You're cutting off an opportunity for the family of God and the church of Christ to do what it's there to do. And that in itself may be an issue of pride that we as Southerners deal with culturally. Because we, like to see, we all want to seem to be doing well, do we not? We don't want people to know that we are weak, that we are human, that we are feeble. We're scared of what others might think of us. But regardless, in times of adversity, we as believers can take all that we are experiencing emotionally and physically and spiritually, and we can bring all of that to the Lord in prayer and lay it at his feet. Calvin says, from whatever quarter our afflictions come, let us learn to turn our thoughts instantly to God. Instantly to God. So we can bring our prayers to the Lord in times of adversity. Verses 6 and 7, we see that in times of adversity, believers can bring their tears to God. Their tears to God. David describes himself as crying under God's heavy hand of discipline. Men, it's okay to cry. It's okay to cry. I know we don't like to. We don't like to express emotion, especially in public. 
David here is crying under God's heavy hand of discipline. He's not being stoic. And he uses language that, that indicates just how severe and bitter his sorrow is. I am exhausted from my moaning. I drown my bed with tears every night. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. David is crying to the Lord morning and evening. It's a way of expressing, I'm crying all day, whether I'm in my bed, whether I'm on my couch, in my palace, I'm crying. He's exhausted, he's cried so much. He's shed so many tears, it feels like his, his, his eyes can shed no more tears. They are spent. My tear ducts are dried up. My eye wastes away. They're, they're so red and swollen and puffy, and they grow weak. All my mourning and my moaning and my tears, they've aged my eyes 30 years. They've become dim, is what it's felt like. My eyes feel like the eyes of an elderly person, no longer as bright, no longer able to see as my eyes once could, because all I can see are my tears that I pour out to the Lord day and night. And while some of this may be the misery coming from his oppressors, the majority of such misery and sorrow comes from having displeased God, from whatever David's sin may have been. And when we realize that we have sinned against a holy and pure God who has done nothing but love us, who does everything for our good, that should drive us to distress in our whole being, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I mean, this was David, who defended sheep by wrestling with and killing a lion. This was David who is not afraid of all the Israelites, the only one who is not afraid to face the nine-foot-tall Goliath. This is David who ceased from crying when the child from his affair with Bathsheba died. And yet David is intensely tearful and sorrowful over his sins and the experience of God's hand of chastisement. In times of adversity, we can bring our tears and our grief to the Lord. But in times of grief, in times of adversity, the question naturally comes in our hearts and in our minds, does God even hear me? Does God even care? So from verses 8 through 10, we see that in times of adversity, believers can be assured that God hears their prayers and sees their tears. Believers can be assured that God hears their prayers and sees their tears. Now, I don't know if something has happened uh, between verses 7 and 8, or if David, while he is praying this prayer, receives uh, the supernatural confidence from the Lord by the Holy Spirit. But we see, David, there's a change in this prayer now. He moves from his grief and his sorrow and asking for deliverance, and now he talks confidently. He begins to speak to those whom the Lord has used to discipline David. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Why? 
for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. David can only talk in confidence once he knows and is assured that God has heard his voice. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. Those who are troubling me and who are shaming me, they will become troubled. They will be ashamed. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. It's as if David's face begins to light up and health and strength returns to his bones and to his eyes. Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, verse 7, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him, Day and night, will he delay long over them? The answer to the first question, will God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? The answer is yes. Will he delay long over them? No. God will not delay long over them because God hears our prayers. He sees our tears. The Lord is gracious and merciful and full of compassion. The same Father who disciplines us with his rod also receives us into his caring and compassionate arms. I'll say that again. The same Father who disciplines us with his rod also receives us into his caring and compassionate arms. Notice that this confidence is based on the fact that the Lord has heard David's prayer Three times in these last three verses, David says, The Lord has heard my prayers. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. David's confidence is not rooted in a change of his circumstances, but in the simple fact that he knows the Lord has heard his prayers. The enemies are still there. He begins to speak to them. What God is using for the rod of affliction is still there. But now David stands in confidence because he has the assurance that God hears his prayers. It's God who will deliver David. It's God that David is confident in. Not in his own strength. Not in the strength of others, allies coming to his help. He's confident in the ally, the one who will come to his help, the Lord God Almighty. It's God who has forgiven David's sins and been merciful and gracious to him. When the Lord uses the wicked to chastise the godly, as soon as the godly take their rest and their security in him, the Lord reverses the fortunes of his people. When the wicked seem to be successful in being allowed to openly mock the righteous, that is when the Lord is using them to chastise his people. But once the chastisement has been accomplished, the wicked better watch out. Verse 10. The Lord's about to bring the wicked low. He will end the power that he gave to them to use for his purposes of chastisement. And he will punish them in their wickedness. For opposing and oppressing God's people. Those enemies of God's people will become the troubled ones. While David is relieved of all his trouble. And notice the last phrase of verse 10. In a moment. Suddenly. It will happen unexpectedly. They will be continuing in their wickedness. 
There will be great revelry and laughter and celebration because of the, the wicked will be gloating over what they've done to the godly. And in a moment, they will be put to shame by the Lord God Almighty. Just as quickly as they were given success, they will be brought down. When hope seemed lost and the godly are desperate, it is then that God intervenes to restore the fortunes of his people and to bring the wicked low. Such is the way of Almighty God, sovereign ruler over all, even the ungodly and the wicked, even sin and Satan himself. And he accomplishes all things according to his holy will and by his eternal decree. And that includes using sin sinlessly. This agony and sorrow of David points forward to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 26 says that as Jesus was going to Gethsemane, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. It's the same word, same ideas from Psalm 6. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. The shadow of the cross loomed over him. He knew what he was about to experience. That, that divine forsakenness is all of the, the cup of God's wrath was poured out upon him for all those whose place he took. He knew that his human body was about to experience death, not decay, but death. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus even says in John chapter 12, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. The author of Hebrews draws on this, and he says of Jesus in Hebrews 5, 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. There's the assurance. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus took his troubles and his sorrows. He took them to the Lord in prayer. He took them to the Lord with tears in prayer. And he took them to God, knowing that God is the one who hears the prayers of his people. And he was heard because of his reverence as a son, obedient to the Father and carrying out the, the decree of the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, to save and elect for himself out of all the world, to die and make atonement for their sins. He became a man of sorrows for your sake and for my sake. He experienced the holy wrath of God against sin, but it wasn't his sin, for he was sinless. He was the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He experienced the holy wrath of God because of my sin, because of your sin. The same experience of David here in Psalm 6, our Lord went through, not because of himself, like David, but for our sake. Jesus knew adversity. Jesus knew what it was to grieve over people who were being led astray. 
Jesus knew what it was to mourn over death. Jesus wept. He knew what it was to be oppressed and persecuted by the ungodly. They mocked him. They spit upon him. Put a crown of thorns on his head. They whipped his back to a bloody mess. Jesus mourned over Jerusalem, who was being led astray by the hypocrisy of the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. Jesus knew the agony of the divine wrath against sin and the chastising hand of God. Jesus' body even went into the grave. David says, in Sheol, who will give you praise? Jesus didn't cry out to God on the cross. Why are they doing this to me? That's, that's what we pray so often. or That's what we cry out or feel, right? Why, why are they doing this to me? Jesus didn't cry out, why do my followers desert me and deny me? No, he predicted it. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out to God, and if you look at Psalm 22, it begins with that lament and that feeling of forsakenness, but it ends with confidence. It ends with assurance, knowing that you will be rescued. So Jesus, when he cries that out, not only is he lamenting, but he's also pointing to the entirety of the psalm, and he knows that he will be delivered. David felt forsaken of God because of his own sin. Jesus felt forsaken of God because of the sins of his people that was laid upon him. So in times of adversity, Jesus prayed. In times of adversity, Jesus poured out his tears to God. In times of adversity, Jesus knew that God heard his prayers. And so Jesus has not been ashamed to identify with the shame of his people and to experience shame himself at the hands of the wicked, especially wicked Herod and Pilate and the chief priests. And so because of him going through all of that for our sake, we can bring our shame to him. We can bring our grief to him and beg for relief according to his mercy and steadfast love. And sometimes our pleas for relief are answered in this life. Sometimes our pleas for relief are not answered in this life. But we can still have that assurance even when they are not answered in this life because we know that ultimately they are answered in the new heavens and the new earth. Where according to Revelation 7, 17 and 21, 4, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. One day, our discipline will be over and we shall come forth shining brighter than the sun. No more tears, no more sorrows, no more pleas for relief, no more oppression and persecution, no more affliction, no more fatherly displeasure and discipline, but only pure joy and praise. And that day is coming. As sure as Jesus came the first time, we can be sure that he's coming again. Matthew Henry writes, quote, It is an unspeakable privilege that we have a God to go to in our afflictions. And it is our duty to go to him and to wrestle with him, and we shall not seek in vain. 
end quote. Everything that's written on that whiteboard, every affliction of ours not written on that whiteboard, should be brought before God with all of our tears in full assurance that they are heard and answered by the Lord. Are any of you afflicted? Meditate on, learn, and sing this psalm. Are any of you sick? Meditate on, learn, and sing this psalm. Are any of you persecuted in some form or another for Christ's sake? Meditate on, learn, and sing this psalm. Are any of you under the rod of God's fatherly discipline? You know what I'm going to say. Meditate on, learn, and sing this psalm. Go to the Lord in prayer, bringing before him all that you are feeling and experiencing, being fully assured that your prayers are heard through Jesus Christ, who has done the very same thing before you. He knows exactly what you're going through, and he will answer the cries of his people. Amen and amen. Let us pray.